0: Hey, guys, check it out. December 8th in New York City, the Soho Forum is hosting a debate on the resolution. While vaccine mandates are an infringement on freedom, some are justified due to their big payoff in lives saved. For the affirmative will be George Mason law professor Ela Soman. And for the negative, our friend Angela McCardle, chair of the Libertarian Party of Los Angeles County and declared candidate for national chair of the Libertarian Party the uh, live debate will be at the sheen center and of course yes they do have the vaccine restrictions at the sheen center but they do not at gene epstein's apartment and they're going to have a live viewing party at gene's house so people who oppose the mandates can watch the debate about the mandates and so find out everything you need to know all about it at the sohoforum.org that's this december the 8th in new york can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton show. All right, you guys, introducing John Schwartz and Bob Murphy. Now, John Schwartz, you guys know, he's an old friend of mine, uh, ever since the Bush years, uh, a lefty writes for the intercept and has a recent piece called inflation is good for you. Uh, Bob Murphy, of course, is at the Mises Institute, is the author of The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and the New Deal and The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, uh, both of which I love, but uh, haven't read in a while. Anyway, um, so I love both of these guys. They're they're both uh, really good guys and friends of mine. Um, obviously, Bob is, you know, an ANCAP, um, but uh, before we get into the arguments, I wanted to give you a chance, John. To identify where on the left wing political spectrum you believe you land. So you're a moderate or a liberal or a progressive or a socialist or a communist or an anarcho syndicalist or something in there somewhere that I might have left out. Or where do you put your thumbtack there?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. The older I get, the more I have no idea what exactly I am. You know, I mean, That's I think uh, all of us, all of us could agree on some pretty basic principles. Like it's bad for people in power to lie to us all the time. Sure. I think that's, that's, (laughs) that's a good place to start. That's a pretty radical
0: point of view, but okay.
1: Yeah. You know, once, once, once you start from that kind of foundation, uh, it takes you to all kinds of weird places that generally are not spoken about in America today. Uh, So the, the answer honestly is, is I don't know. Uh, I actually consider myself to be, on a world spectrum, like kind of conservative, you know, like, I think that if you were to look at a world political spectrum, it's very, very different from the United States. And I would probably be on the, you know, I I would
0: have, I would have called you a progressive, right? You're to the left of the Democrats, but you're not a socialist who's for banning all private property and nationalizing all industry and agriculture and crazy things, right?
1: Yeah, I would, I would, I would consider myself a progressive, definitely to the left of most of the Democratic Party. But again, you know, the Democratic Party takes a lot of positions that I consider to be, you know, kind of. Uh, uh, sure. dishonest yeah, like, they, they they do not follow follow you know under look, the i'm just i'm just looking for
0: the time i'm just looking for you're not a hillary clintonian and you're not a communist but you're somewhere in there in the middle of those at least and yeah so, that's, just that's, so that's people that's know what we're sure. dealing with here all right now john you go first inflation is good for you you don't say
1: yeah that's right i mean this as i learned after writing this article this is an extremely unpopular perspective with a lot of people but it is actually fairly conventional among some people who follow these issues closely. And so that that headline is kind of trolly and trolly on purpose. Uh, You know, nobody likes paying higher prices for stuff. I do not enjoy it myself. But the truth is that for a lot of people in America, uh, a lot of regular working people who have been getting regular good raises, even at the sort of the bottom of the wage spectrum uh, over the past couple of years, if you have debt, if you have mortgage debt, if you have uh, student loan debt, things that are not inflation adjusted, and you're getting raises, the value to you you know, of the debt that you're paying off is going down. And so it is good for people like that. And it is very, very bad for people at the top of US society because they're the ones who on net own that debt, own the mortgage debt, own the credit card debt, uh, own the student debt. And they do not like it when the value of their debt goes down. And that's why it has always been uh, a conservative obsession with sound money, meaning hard money, meaning money that does not uh, decrease in value. And so uh, there are always unusual cases. Like, certainly, there are people for who, regular working people, for whom inflation can be bad. Uh, there are fewer of them than people think. People always bring up you know, retirees living on a fixed income, but most retirees get most of their income at this point from social security and social security is, is not fixed income. It is inflation adjusted. and In fact, it's going to go up in January, uh, next month by 6%. So it's a complicated issue, but it is important to understand that it is good for lots of people and it is very, very bad for the people at the
0: top. Okay. Now, before I let Bob go, I want to point out that, uh, just for the audience's sake, that this isn't simply a matter of, I don't believe, left versus right, as in John is here on the side of the wage earners and Bob is here to stick up for the owners, although there may be some of that. But I think it's a bit more complicated. Uh, what do you say, Bob? Sure. Then thanks,
2: uh, Scott, for giving us this uh, opportunity to hash this stuff out. So yeah, let me I'll, – I'll make a few brief points to not have like a, a sort of – Opening statement here, and just because I know you probably want to keep this more conversational, Scott, but it's, I guess the fundamental thing I want to point out is it seems like what John was doing in his article and, you know, his remarks here was just analyzing it as if prices were rising for, you know, who knows why it doesn't matter. We're not going to investigate the causes. And, hey, if, if some prices rise rapidly, then what are the impacts on creditors versus debtors without you know, pushing it deeper and, and asking, well, but why are the prices rising? And so in the context of, for example, the United States, the reason prices, whenever you see prices rising rapidly, or often when you see prices rising rapidly, for example, it's because there's a war. And so if you, you know, looked at a chart of the price level during U.S. history, all of U.S. history, you would see the most rapid increases were always when there was a war, certainly when the U.S. was on a gold or and or silver standard that they would go off that, and that's, you know, during wartime. And so that you know so that's one obvious way and I'm, I'm bringing that up first of course for your audience scott is to tell people be, be careful when you know you, you get uh, start thinking that oh maybe all this panic mongering over inflation really is just the creditors trying to protect their assets or you know their fixed income payments because there is that element and so ultimately in the us what's happening is the government is creating more dollars and that's why prices are going up and generally speaking periods when the government and the central bank working in tandem are creating a lot more dollars, that's not good for the little guy. And it's helping not necessarily all of the 1%, but some politically powerful people who are in the 1%. So I, I would say that, um, the, the other, let me just make two other quick ones. Um, the, so it's true and John brought this up in his, his, um, intercept article that it's, if you look at the wage distributions, There's some statistics around showing that, oh, hey, over the last year, you know, it's actually the bottom quartile, I think is the way they broke it up, had the highest gains and they almost kept pace with inflation. All right. So even on its own terms, I think it was like wages at the bottom level went up 5.8% versus the official CPI 6.2. So they didn't even, you know, tread water there. But the point was they went up more than the other income levels. But I just want to point out that- what that's really measuring my understanding is is if you look at people who are still employed then that's what happens but there's a lot of people who lost their jobs or who just you know stopped going to work because of safety concerns and so forth health concerns with, with coronavirus and so i it's not that they're getting plugged in as a zero wages or salaries and that's pulling down the average i don't think they're just they even make it into the number anymore so, just keep that in mind. it's I don't think it's the case that if you look at everybody who was in the bottom quartile like two years ago, let's say, and then look now at those same group of people that they, on average, are earning you know a decent amount more. I, I don't think that's true. it's It's because, again, those statistics are just measuring who still has a job and what's their wage payment. And then the last thing I'll mention is and John, you know, he did anticipate this when he was saying, certain types of debt are not adjustable, but other types of debt are. So for example, if you've got credit cards, bill or debt rolling over, when inflation goes up, then interest rates go up too. And then, you know, your, your debt gets uh, rolling over at a higher rate. So with a lot of this stuff, it's not just a creditor versus debtor thing. It, It has to do with whether it's anticipated because if it's anticipated inflation, well then, you know, initially when you borrow the money, the creditors take that stuff into account. So it's, so it's true, you know, John's right that if you narrowly just look at the issue of for debt that's fixed rate. And to the extent that there's a surprise inflation that hits, then yes, there is a transfer there. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Let me just make one one last one is one last point is the other thing to consider is what percentage of somebody's income is devoted to things like groceries and gasoline and such. And so, yes, it's true in terms of overall, you know, your the value of your portfolio. It could be true for a lot of people that, you know, the, the, the people at the lower end of the income scale don't have a lot of assets They might be carrying a lot of debt. And so therefore they benefit from the wealth transfer to the extent that the the value of the debt is eroded by inflation. But on the other hand, if milk goes up and gasoline goes up, that's not hurting the top 1% nearly as much as, you know, a working class household. Mm -hmm. And because again, those necessities are a bigger portion of their budget. Yeah. So, so let's start with that, John.
0: What about that as inflation as a regressive tax, where it's the cost of living is going up for people who almost their entire budget is just the cost of living, rather than being able to invest or spend money on anything else.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's important to keep in mind. But again, it is the case that you know over the past year, wage increases have kept almost, up almost completely with inflation, and this the six point two percent is. Uh, you know, sort of the more volatile measure of inflation, the, the regular like core measure of inflation is something like 4.2% over the last year. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's a fair point, And it's important you know, to keep in mind people who are the most vulnerable, for sure. But when you count up everything, uh, particularly the COVID relief bills, uh, and the wage increases that people have gotten, almost everybody, Towards the bottom of the wage distribution is better off than they were honestly uh, before COVID. Like as as rough as it's been, like just in financial terms, they they are better off. And so, as I say, worth keeping in mind, not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think you know it is a fair point to say that like like while uh, I think the infl- the official unemployment rate is now something like four point two percent, so very low. Uh, it is the case that some people have. Some people have dropped out of the labor force. That does have some effect on the wage measurement, but that number is, is really not very big. If you look at the uh, like the prime prime age labor force participation, uh, it was I think 83 percent just before the pandemic, and it's now you know 81.6 percent. So
0: it it is almost back
1: to where it was before the pandemic. So what
0: about that, Bob? That you know actually. Uh, unemployment isn't that bad and wages are more or less keeping up with inflation, maybe better than we would have expected.
2: So so it's with the unemployment stuff. So there's, there's two different ways of looking at it. So if you look at the unemployment rate, it's true that that's, you know, not at a jaw dropping height. Um, however, just looking at like total employment that, that it fell off a cliff going into COVID obviously. And then it has not, um, it all recovered to its, its former, uh, level. And so it's, so there are a lot fewer people employed now than there were before, uh, you know, the pandemic hit. Um, and so, and there's combination. So, you know, why is there that mismatch? Cause normally it's, you know, those things move in tandem that when the unemployment rate's high, there's fewer people employed and, you know, vice versa. Um, and, I, and it's, so it has to do with things, you know, a lot of people that they're, they're, we were getting, p- paid high unemployment benefits and and partly that was by design because the government didn't want people to feel you know a trade off between oh gee I want to stay home to keep my family safe and, and or if I get you know sick I don't want to contribute to the spread but I don't want to have to choose between that and feeding my family so that's partly why they were increasing those benefits in, in and often in in many cases paying more than people you know people got more to stay home than to go back to work and again that that wasn't you know that was often admittedly by design so that's part of what the mismatch is. So yes, it's the, from just looking at some of the statistics, you might get a bleaker picture of what's going on now than if you take into account all of these other factors. Again, though, I I don't think it's, um, it's, it's correct to, to tell people at the lower end of the income scale, Hey, don't worry because the government's sending all of you checks right now. And so as long as that keeps up, then the fact that things are a lot more expensive now than they were last year that that's that's going to keep you whole that i i don't think that's a, a a very secure position to be in and and also i i think that goes hand in hand with with some of the other elites in the 1% are trying to do is to move us towards a society where people are more dependent on checks from the government and it's harder for people to support themselves in you know the new information economy so it's it's true, you know, those checks help people in the short term, but I think everybody would be a lot better off if they were earning everything from, you know, their own employment.
0: Hmm. Well, so what about that, John? I mean, that does make a big difference. As you're saying it, people are more or less being kept whole for now by these checks, but that can't last, right?
1: Yeah, well, so first of all, I would say I'm, I'm just looking here at the labor force particip- uh, participation rate for 25 to 54-year-olds. So that's, you know... For people who don't spend their lives looking at statistics like this, uh, weirdos, uh, unlike the three of us, you know, the strange people who don't spend their lives uh, looking at the Federal Reserve's website, uh, it was 83 percent in January of 2020. And, it, you know, indeed, it did fall off a cliff. It went way, way down, uh, as you would expect, during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, it's now 81.7 percent. So it has – largely not completely but largely recovered so down from 83 percent to you know 81.7 percent so that's something but it i, I don't think it has a, a huge impact on the statistics you'd have to get a federal reserve specialist to explain to you in detail exactly what the effects are um i and uh, on the larger point about you know checks from the government and so forth I, this is just a basic fundamental disagreement that is ideological and can't really be you know, proven one way or the other. Mm. Like my perspective about the world is that th- there is no escape <laughs> from dependency. We are all dependent as children. We're dependent uh, when we get older on other people, we are dependent on the, uh, laws and regulations of society for our entire lives, and there's just there's just no way to escape that. And it doesn't bother me. I think that it is, uh, you know, an instinct for independence. I think is a good one, but also one that taken to extremes is really kind of impossible. And so it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me for people to get checks from the government. I don't think that, that weakens our moral moral fiber. I think literally every single person, including people working for wages, are dependent on government and society in general. So as I say, that's, it's just sort of an ideological perspective. Well, look, where
0: it, it's certainly the case that I know that we all three would agree on that the richer you are, the more welfare you're on in this society, just as a matter of fact, and not in every single case, but generally speaking. And uh, also, I think that we're just going to agree to disagree about democracy and big welfare states on one hand versus libertarian individualism on the other. As you said, these are just different ways of Of looking at things. And it's somewhat beside the point here. Um, Although, not exactly. I I mean, people need to take into account the different arguments where y'all are coming from. But I'm just saying that's not one that we're trying to solve here today, whether to have a welfare state or not. Um, But the question is, you know, about all this inflation, and it it is obviously part of the argument. But I got to put this to you, John, that, you know, in Austin, right now, um, if you look at the giant housing bubble, which is going to pop at some point, but Part of it is caused by inflationary money and fractional banking. You know, you talk about rich people are mad that they're getting paid back in dimes for dollars they loaned, but we're talking about banks that create money out of nothing when they make a housing loan, so they're not that sad, but anyway, um, and then you have people fleeing all the blue states to come to Texas to be relatively free, and uh, all these giant tech companies moving to Austin as well. So all these factors are playing together, and the price of a house, a $300,000 house, is now $500,000, $475,000 in the space of about a year, something like that. So that sounds to me like it benefits retired baby boomers and middle-class people who already bought their house 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But for somebody who's renting, their rent just went up 500 bucks and they're in no position to buy a house until after the next economic calamity comes. And then hopefully... Uh, The housing prices will go through such a disaster that ruins all of these current homeowners that a poor schmuck like me might actually finally be able to get into one without having to move to (laughs) Dallas.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, actually, uh, a big chunk of my family lives in Texas and not just Texas, but Austin. And uh, so I hear about this a lot. Yeah, I mean, like housing prices in cities are crazy. Uh, I don't think this has that much to do with you know the Federal Reserve and fractional banking. I think it has mostly to do with the way the economy works now, uh, the way that uh, zoning laws prevent people from you know building apartment buildings and stuff like that and I think that this is an area of American life where really we could use more free markets you know we we could use the elimination of a ton of regulations about, Land use and stuff like that, where that really is a case where you see, uh, you know, sort of the older, richer people using regulations. Yeah, but wait, I mean, you're you're not
0: really just dismissing the role of cheap credit and people coming up and buying all these houses, and even Wall Street law firms. I mean, uh, 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 hedge funds coming in and buying up thousands of houses at a time, and all this when interest rates are essentially nothing. All these Californians coming in, they're buying houses. They're they're essentially Gentrifying the people of Austin, out of Austin, buying houses off the internet they'd never even seen before. Because if you're already rich enough and have the credit score, the interest rate is 2% or something. So that's got to be yeah, part Yeah, I of mean,
1: it. I yeah, no, I agree. It is part of it. But I think a larger part of it is zoning laws, and a larger part of it is, you know, I mean, why is this happening? Like, why is the U.S. economy working in the way that it is right now? Like, you know, I live in New York City, and housing prices are berserk here as well. And so, uh, I mean, I think the answer is pretty clear, which is that we've set up an economy that works for big tech firms. It works for uh, lots of huge corporations. And the basis for this, particularly for tech firms, but also for like big pharma companies like that uh, is patent law and the way that everything protects their intellectual property. And you have, you have longer and longer, uh, patents and copyrights. And so I think that that's like something that if people really wanted to deal with the core issues here, like we would weaken intellectual property laws. And uh, that would be terrible for Hollywood. They would do everything possible to prevent that. It would be terrible for tech and, and pharma profits. But that would go a long way towards like sort of Cooling off the crazy housing markets in the big cities in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Austin and New York. So I think these are deeper problems, and I agree. You know, the cheap credit is probably part of it. And now, wait a minute. Uh, let me let
0: me stop you for a second. I'm I'm all for um, abolishing intellectual property stuff, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, Bob is uh, one of those two on this question. Uh, we'll give him a chance in a second. But what exactly does that have to do with housing prices again? Well, it's just that's the that we have created an economy
1: where- Oh, I see, because of, I I got
0: you, I got you. Go ahead, go
1: ahead. Yeah, and that's, you know, I mean, that you you see in all of the the cities with the craziest housing prices. These are places that are dependent on these industries, on these industries that are in turn dependent on uh, copyrights and patents and stuff like that. Mm. It's all intellectual property. It's incredible the degree to which, uh, you know, sort of this- New form of property, you could say, is the basis for the U.S. economy. Okay, but my uh, question
0: was sloppy. But the question was, isn't this all welfare for middle class and upper middle class people and not for poor and working class people like in your argument here? I mean, if I get to refinance my house every couple of years and redo my granite countertops every couple of years, then Obama's right. I didn't build that. That's a giant welfare check from the Federal Reserve straight to middle-class people. They don't call it an earned income tax credit. They get to pretend that somehow, you know, it's the free market at work. But as you said, nope, they're dependent on the central bank there. But then that means that a guy who's a mechanic can't buy a house. Yeah, well, I mean, sure, you can find individual cases of
1: people who all their wealth is in their house. But usually the people who, you know, have big, fancy, expensive houses also have you know they're they're also creditors and in addition to being debtors they are creditors in significant ways and, and that's why they get so upset about inflation
0: okay bob jump in here and say some things
1: <laughs> okay sure so thanks guys um yeah, yes
2: yeah, so i i do agree with john with, with a, on a lot of those specific points and i think you know you kind of anticipated that scott that um you know i i follow the work of Stefan kinsella and i don't think that intellectual property is even a a Coherent concept, um, and 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 yes, certainly rich people have had an influence in how regulations and the legal code works, and certainly, you know, the prosecution of white so called white collar crime versus you know things that are more likely to be um, done by people who are politically powerless. And so, given that we all, I think, you know, share a similar worldview on those matters, I'm saying. The Federal Reserve is this engine that can literally create legal tender money. You know, if if your neighbor down the street had a laser printer cranking out $100 bills, that definitely helps him and it helps his buddies and the people he spends his money on. It doesn't help poor people per se. That's crazy. And so why would you think that this same institution of the federal government that created all of this IP laws and all these other things that benefit rich cronies is they're going to use that engine of inflation in a way that's going to help the poor and hurt the upper 1% that, you know, just that's on the face of it, sort of implausible. And, you know, so, okay, well, what's wrong with the, you know, with the logic, so, w- one thing, by the way, is I, I looked it up, the, the total employment, the latest numbers, it's down like something like 4.1 million, I think, from the, the pre pandemic peak. So th- that's the number of people right now, you know, f- fewer total people working, you know, about 4 million or so now versus back then. Um, and, and so I think, you know, Scott, you were raising the, the point. So it is true. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to minimize the point that yes, on fixed rate assets, you know, things that pay off the dollar denominated and that don't adjust in the face of inflation. Yes, that just by itself, unexpected inflation, you know, helps the debtors and hurts the creditors. But like, for example, the S and P 500, the latest you know, number, it's up about 30% year over year. So that far more than compensated for the 6.2% rise in consumer prices. So again, um, you know, it's the rich speculators are the people who are able when they see a change in monetary policy can go invest in soybean futures and do things with derivatives. They're the ones that can go make a boatload of money. It's the people who are earning a fixed salary who have to wait and go ask their boss for a raise after a while. They're always left behind when there's an unexpected rise in, in prices. So I think you know those are some things we need to keep in mind. Hmm.
0: Okay, hang on just one second. Hey y'all, Scott here for easyship.com. Man, who wants to use stamps.com? They're terrible. Their website is a disaster. I've been sending out tons of signed books to donors and friends lately and it's clear the only real alternative to standing in line for the 1990s technology at the post office is easyship.com. Preparing and printing labels with EasyShip.com is as easy as can be, and they are cheaper and better than Stamps.com. You can even send 100 free packages per month. Start out at scotthorton.org slash EasyShip. Hey, look here, y'all. You know I'm for the non-aggression principle and all, but you know who it's okay to kill? That's right, flies. They don't have rights. Fly season is here again, and that's why you need the Bug Assault 3.0 Salt Shotgun for killing flies with. Make sure you get the 3.0 now. It's got that bar safety on it so you can shoot as fast as you can rack it. The bug assault makes killing flies easy and fun. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Get the bug assault today. Just click the Amazon link in the right-hand margin at scotthorton.org. In fact, you can do all of your Amazon shopping through that link, and the show will get a kickback from Amazon's end of the sale. Happy hunting. Hey, y'all. Scott here for Lorenzotti Coffee. It's great stuff. It's actually how I'm conscious in recording this spot right now. You probably also like and need coffee. Well, Lorenzotti.coffee's got a great dark roast and these really cool grinders so you can brew it as fresh as possible. Here real soon, they're also going to have a nice medium roast and other options available. Check them out at Lorenzotti.coffee and use promo code scotthorton.org to save 10%. They ship fast and it tastes great. Support good anti-government stimulant suppliers. Go to Lorenzotti.coffee today. On that last point, I want to throw in there that I'll never forget Greenspan. I saw him do this two or three different times uh, in his day, back when I watched TV more. Um, In his testimony, he would say, you know, if there's any more upward pressure on wages, that could cause inflation. That's our real worry. And so the people on the lowest end of the economic ladder who are last in line to get a cost of living increase compared to the executives they work for, etc., they get the blame for causing inflation when they're the last person to catch up with the rise of uh, in the cost of living. And that always really bothered me, you know, and that, you know, is, I guess, usually the ideological capitalist side with the owners, but not me, not necessarily <laughs> anyway, you know?
1: Well, that's, you know it speaks well of anyone who pays attention to that kind of Greenspan testimony, because that's exactly right. Yeah, you know, That is the role that the Fed has usually played, is they they get concerned when unemployment gets too low. And so they hike interest rates to slow the economy and throw people out of work. And Greenspan definitely did say that. I think it's important to say that with all the terrible things that Greenspan did, like getting letting the housing bubble grow to the gigantic catastrophic level where it almost destroyed the entire world economy. Like after Greenspan did did that, he said that in testimony for sure, uh, he was unusual in letting unemployment fall far below where people used to say it would become inflationary. So his actual policy in that area was fairly good as much as...
0: As if that's what I caused the housing it. bubble, right? Is they inflated too long and that was what led to the massive correction later.
1: Yeah, I really don't think that that's true. That's another subject that we could argue about for a long time. But
0: well, let's argue about that. I mean, in the George, in the W. Bush years, they would say unemployment. I mean, uh, pardon me. Uh, price inflation is low, and I would say, and look, I'm a real amateur here. I just listen to Bob and Ron Paul and people like that. But it seemed to me like, wow, if uh, you measure the price of stocks inflation is high. And if you measure the price of housing across the country, inflation is high. And if you measure the cost of fuel and therefore food on the grocery store shelves, inflation is high. But somehow they add all these other things into their market basket and say that, no, that doesn't count. But then, but that's kind of the point, right? Is we didn't have widespread price inflation. The inflation went to certain sectors that created those giant bubbles and then those massive corrections. Right? Or not, John? And then, well,
1: uh, I don't know. That's a whole bunch of stuff together. But I would say this about the housing bubble specifically: is that the Fed did not really need to change its monetary uh, policy to destroy the housing bubble. Like, believe me, if Greenspan and all the other big honchos at the Fed had gone to Congress and gone on TV and said, "There's a huge housing bubble." housing prices are way, way, way too high and it's going to collapse, it would have collapsed. You know, it, it would have deflated. It would, it would never have gotten to the heights that it got. Like, just people really do pay attention to what the Fed says about this kind of stuff. And they didn't need to change monetary policy to uh, prevent it from inflating in the first place. So I don't, you know, I mean, there there are trade-offs in any policy, but I, I don't really think that allowing, you know, allowing unemployment to fall to the lows of the 1990s was, you know, sort
0: of the cause of the housing bubble. Uh, well, oh, anyway. Okay, but all right, I'm sorry, but because that that's my fault in like poor language because I was, I, I didn't mean to say letting the unemployment get that low was what caused it. I just meant the inflationary policy of that time that helped to get unemployment that low was the same inflationary policy that led to the housing bubble, which is different and not the same thing at all. And I know Bob, I know this about Bob and you can address this, that I know that you don't think that if unemployment is low, that causes inflation and that causes bubbles. And that's the nature of the problem here. That's not the Misesian case at all, is it? Yeah, exactly
2: right. So, um, let me just point interested people to, uh, look up, uh, I have a, a new book that's just out from the Mises Institute called Understanding Money Mechanics, and one or two of the chapters gets into you know did the Fed cause the housing bubble, and I give a bunch of evidence. It's some of the things you know we did in in real time. So I I have not been a fortune teller. I was I thought price inflation was going to be worse you know after the Fed started doing QE. So I I, I did uh, miss that one, but I w- I was saying in. Let's see, October of 2007, right? So that was 11 months before the financial crisis hit. I was warning at the the Mises.org pages that it might be the worst recession in 25 years. Okay, so, and I was using what's called Austrian business cycle theory. And you're right, Scott, that there the idea is when the central bank in the current context, you know, pumps in money, artificially lowers interest rates, that gives the wrong signals to people and it causes. You know ma- male investment it causes people to invest in the wrong things in the, r- in the wrong lines because interest rates are prices and they help coordinate economic activity so when the fed screws up those prices by pumping in money that's in a sense created out of thin air to use the popular expression that's going to have negative consequences and so when there are these wild booms and busts it's typically the poor people who get hurt the most in those you know roller coasters so, so there's there's that element, and again, this isn't just us after the fact saying, "Oh, well, this housing crisis must be the Fed's fault because that's what our ideology tells us." We were warning of that um, in real time when a lot of people were laughing in our faces. So, well, and Robert Blumen wrote that. that
0: Robert Blumen wrote that at Mises.org in two thousand five. He was first, I know. So,
2: yeah, and Mark, Mark Thornton also had a really good one about called "Like Housing Too Good to Be True," and and so so anyway, I I do want to say that, but you, but you're right, Scott, the, in and John is correct too, uh, that given the current paradigm, the, and I would say it's a, it's a standard Keynesian case. So certainly this shouldn't be laid at the you know feet of free marketeers. They think there's a trade-off between price inflation and unemployment, and all oh, the central bank has to choose. And if you know, if the labor market's getting too hot, well, then we gotta you know tap the brakes and so forth. and and, that, and when you're thinking like that, then yes that leads you to believe that oh wow if workers are getting too m- much wage gains then you know things are heating up and we need to, and we need to tighten and that's no that's not a standard austrian hard money view if you have like for example the, under the classical gold standard or if you had you know in our time just free markets and, and money and banking then there there wouldn't be that ostensible trade off once everybody knew the money was going to be stable and that what the money you know, buys today, you could predict very well what it was going to be able to buy 20 years from now, then the, the rationale or the reasons for that trade-off aren't, aren't there. So, I mean, because p- partly what happens is under the current paradigm, if they do dump in a bunch of money that's unexpected, you know, then business revenues go up and people think it's prosperity when really it isn't. So they start bidding workers away, you know, they, they hire the, the ranks of the unemployed, but it's partly because they've been fooled. And so it's when the money is unstable, it can lead people to these erroneous boom-bust cycles where if you just had a solid foundation and everybody knew what the money's purchasing power was going to be in the future, that would be one less area of uncertainty. And yes, the unemployment rate would naturally fall to what I would say would be a natural level, and it wouldn't be getting Jostled up and down by the central bank.
0: Mm. All right, now let me just say here real quick before I go back to you, John that uh, you know, I know that I don't know what you have already ever studied about the Austrian business cycle theory, and I don't expect you to just accept Bob's point of view on all of this now or whatever. That's not the point. But I do think it's an important point, and I think you might agree that under the current uh, I guess paradigm, hate using that kind of jargon, the current way of doing things, There very much is sort of this left, right worker versus management, um, you know, um, kind of argument that certainly from your point of view, you're taking the side of the working guy and saying more inflation. And if his wages go up, well, good, that's not wrong. Let's just keep going with that instead of panicking and tightening where Bob is saying that this is an unnecessary conflict that. Um, If you have high employment and stable money that that doesn't cause inflation, Uh, again, it's the cost of living increase uh, on the part of the wage earners that is keeping up with the devalued uh, uh, cost of the money or, you know, value of the money who are then getting the blame after the fact for causing it with their upward pressure. And so maybe it doesn't have to be that way at all.
1: Yeah, well, here I would suggest to people listening to this to read an extremely long book about the Federal Reserve. And I bet uh, you may both be familiar with this book. I bet Bob is. Uh, It's it's called Secrets of the Temple by William Grider. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, to me, he makes a convincing case that the idea of money being stable over any kind of medium or long-term is, is a utopian and impossible goal for human beings. And it has never happened in human history. And there's really no reason to think that it ever could happen. And so maybe in theory, like, you know, in theory, it would be a good thing if we could remove this source of instability and uncertainty from human life. But in practice, as I say, it's never happened. And it's, very hard to imagine, for me at least, that it ever could. So, uh, yes, I mean, if if such a thing were possible, pro- probably it would be good. It's just that such a thing is not possible. And there's just, you know, like, like attempting to make it possible has uh, never really worked out. And, uh, you yes. know, part of the history of the gold standard is causing, you know, extremely intense depressions. And I think that anybody who takes sort of economic history as a warning should understand that like having you know, stable money attempts at creating stable money generally cause periods of significant deflation and these are disastrous for society and to me this kind of utopian attempt to have sound money is really what led to the development of like hard left ideologies like communism is because people could not live under regimes like that. And they were like, we need to throw everything about this out and come up with something new. And so again, this is an ideological perspective. It's, it's, it's an issue that can't really be settled, but I would suggest that that history has some pretty strong evidence on this point.
0: Well, I mean, I disagree about that last part. I mean, I I know that Bob has a different perspective and I know what it is and I share it. Um, although he's much more the expert than me for sure um so uh but i think it is a matter of you know a preponderance of the evidence and maybe best arguments made and i often feel john i think you could probably sympathize um like our the capitalist side gets the red herring that like maybe you only ever heard the chicago school's best guy on this and not a solid rothbardian like bob because i know well go ahead bob is it the The gold standard or the lack of it that causes these depressions, or how does that work? This isn't just ideological. I think it is a historical question that's been tackled from, obviously, different ideological directions, but still.
2: Yeah, so um, ironically, the professional economist of the three of us is the one who hasn't read I've heard of that book, but I have not read it, so so there you go. Um, But yeah, I, I don't know... Exactly what, what John meant by that claim, but there are long stretches. And again, you know, instead of the long book, I can just point people to the short one, the understanding money mechanics that came up. I, I know I have some statistics. I think there's a chart on this to show that in the real world. So this isn't like me saying, oh, if they had just done it right, but no, in the real world, over a very long stretch, like I want to say a century, that you know, what a hundred or what ten dollars could buy you in terms of goods and services stayed roughly the same. Now, there were ups and downs, that's true. So if, if that's what all, all that book meant was that it wasn't literally constant year to year, that's true, but I think, you know, you anticipated what I was gonna say, Scott, when you go and investigate and say, oh, under the classical gold, and also the dollar was tied to silver for long stretches in the early history too, it wasn't just gold, and say, so what, what was it that caused the, you know, the dollar to lose its purchasing power and then to regain it? It was typically when there was a war and then, you know, the government would relieve itself and or you know the banks from redeeming paper notes in terms of gold or silver specie and so that's what allowed for the inflation because that's how the government paid for the war and so um, so it's true you know John's right that they inflate to pay for the war because if they just try to do it you know quote honestly through taxes or borrowing but and kept the money on a stable footing tied to gold and silver then it, the people would have seen the full cost of the war and they wouldn't have tolerated it So, again, for anti-war listeners, it's really going off gold freed the government's hands to pay, you know, spend more on the war than they otherwise would have been able to get away with. And in a sense, though,
0: Bob, he's right about what he says about the communists, right, that Marx looked at not just price inflation, but he looked at the boom bust that came from the inflation from the war and said, what a disastrous way to run an economy. You got a warehouse full of goods and an unemployment line full of people. This is ridiculous. But it wasn't yeah. the market that had created that situation. It was the government intervention in it, or not. Yeah, and, right? and
2: also you could attribute it to com- or attribute communism. You could also, you know, a lot of people think the rise of Hitler ultimately was, you know, because of what happened to Germany after World War One. And again, it was the same pattern that, going into world war 1 all the major belligerents except the us went off gold to pay for the war and then they tried to go back after the war ended and that was the, yeah so there was a massive inflation and then deflation to try to go back to the pre-war parity and that re- that was crazy so i agree with john there that does hurt you know the average person that that wild up and down and so i'm you're right scott what i'm saying is don't just focus on Oh gee, really what it was, you know, the inflation was fine. That would have been fine for every all the poor people. It was just then trying to go back and maintain the purchasing power. So we can all agree that that wild up and down is not good for the little guy. But I'm saying to just focus on the inflation. You can't just keep doing inflation. If you do that eventually the currency collapses. So hyperinflation doesn't help poor people either. And so I'm saying, you know, it's not realistic to say, "Oh, let's just keep pumping in money cuz inflation's good." It's just it's just when you try to stop it that that's where the pain sets in. You know, again, that's like going on a drinking binge and saying so long as you don't stop, you're fine. You know, but that's that's not really a recipe for health either.
0: Well, and what about that, John? I mean, is there a limit on this or they should just send us each a stimulus check for a million bucks so we can finally buy a house and live comfortably here and not have to worry about living check to check this way?
1: Yeah, there there definitely is a limit on this. And And why, though? I
0: mean, what will happen if we don't obey the limit?
1: Uh, eventually, inflation would get to a point where it would be uh, more destructive than constructive. Like, there, you know, of course, there are many, many examples of that in history, of uh, inflation getting too high. But my perspective on this is generally, you know, like, my perspective on eating food. Like, is it good for people to eat 500 calories a day? Like, no, that is not good for people. It's much better if they eat, like, 2,500 calories per day. Like, does that mean that people should eat 25,000 calories per day? Like, no. (laughs) Like, neither one of those, neither the 500 per day nor the 25,000 per day, is a good idea for people. But there is a happy medium. And I just don't think that we're out of the happy medium at this point. And I also think that, you know, we can rendezvous in a year and see if I'm right about this. I think inflation is going to be much lower a year. I don't think that it's going to be a situation where it's just increasing and getting out of control. So that, that's my perspective on it in general. Like, there really is a happy medium. And, you know, I have seen those charts about the stable purchasing power of a dollar over, you know, a period of 100 years. But as Bob says, there were wild ups and downs, uh, often thanks to war, not always thanks to war by any means. And uh, I do believe in what Cain said about people talking about in the long run, like, oh, yeah, that's true, over 100 years. But in the long run, we are all dead. People don't live in the long run. And they, people cannot live with the, the sort of like wild swings, especially the, def, the deflation, which crushes debtors. And so that's just an issue where it, would it be nice if we could remove this source of uncertainty from human life? Like, wait, wait, um, it would be good.
0: But wait, on that last point, though, I mean, it's almost like you didn't hear him. I mean, would you address the idea that it wasn't the gold standard that caused the wild swings? It was when they abandoned it, inflated, and then tried to go back to it again and schemes like that. It was the political intervention in the currency to pay for these giant government programs like wars that caused those disruptions rather than having stable money causing them. Is that possible or that's just... I mean, look, I I went to Austin Community College and I learned the Democrat version of this. But I'm just saying it seems to me like there's some pretty big holes in it and that Bob seemed to have identified some of them here.
1: Well, what I was saying was like, like, were these wild swings sometimes caused by wars and people, uh, you know, the the government purposefully uh, undertaking policies that they knew would cause inflation? Like, yes, that that is true. Sometimes that was true, but by no means all of time. You know, there are lots and lots of examples of, of kind of wild swings where war was not involved, and so as I say, I just think it's a utopian ideal that cannot exist in like actual human life, and even you know if you're thinking about gold and silver, like it, just the simple fact of like having a currency based on these things, like like makes it clear why this is a utopian ideal because there is no way for human beings to control like how much gold and silver are mined like how much of those things exist and so there is there is no solid foundation to, on which you can base the value of money it just it it doesn't exist it's it's impossible for human beings to create that the best you can do is for people to think about these things seriously and try to create monetary policy To create a sort of band of levels of inflation with which human beings can live, and that means no deflation for sure because that's extremely destructive. It means no hyperinflation for sure. That's also very destructive. But uh, I'm I'm arguing for a happy medium and that it is something that can be created and maintained to some degree by human beings using their brains. And I I don't think that we can outsource that to you know precious metals or some other system. Mm.
0: I don't know, Bob. It sounds like he might be onto something there. This was the big fight. William Jennings Bryan said this gold standard's killing all our farmers with their incredibly high interest rates and unforgivable loan arrangements, and so we need free silver. Why? Because it's inflationary. And so, can you at least give us free silver, Bob? Or what do you say to that? Cross the <laughs> gold for us all.
2: Yeah. Right.
0: So, so I, you
2: know, I think. Let me just mention some notice. And obviously, this is of course going to happen when. Two people start out and they say their opening statements, and then they go back and forth in a polite, civil manner. I'm just mentioning, though, that like if having read John's original piece, there, it's hey, inflation's good for you, and it it hurts uh, creditors and help and helps debtors, and da da da. And it's not, you know, oh, but if it got to be too much, then it really would be disastrous. I'm saying so. (laughs) Just someone who read his first his original article would not be aware of any of these nuances and realizes it. You know, if, if inflation just straight up is a transfer of wealth from the rich to the poor, you know, how is that going to help poor people if you do too much of it? So I'm just just observing that. Um, but but you're, you're one difference there. And so, yes, back you know, in the late 1800s when they wanted to have the free coinage of silver part of there, you could make a stronger case because farmers were selling you know agricultural products and they had mortgages on their land. And so there, yes, it would make sense if there was more inflation by allowing, you know, the free coinage of silver, then prices would rise. So farmers revenues would immediately go up and they would still have just the fixed interest payments making to the bank for their mortgages on their land so that you could see how that would help them. I Again, I wouldn't say that would have been good for the economy in general and, you know, the average person per se, because it would have been volatile. But you could see that. But again, here, you um, When, you know, the Fed announces an unexpectedly inflationary policy and you see commodities instantly shoot up, it's not that wage rates instantly shoot up. So I think, you know, even though, yes, William Jennings, Bryan's core market, their target audience would have benefited in the short term from unexpected inflation, I don't think it's correct to say to the average working person today All things considered, you're going to benefit from unexpected inflation. And as even I think John is agreeing, if you did too much of it, we all agree, you know, it, it would be bad. So John's saying, oh, I think, you know, a little bit more is fine. And I'm saying, I think it should be less. But we all kind of agree too much inflation is bad, even for poor people.
0: Hold on just one second. Be right back. So you're constantly buying things from Amazon.com. Well, that makes sense. They bring it right to your house. So what you do, though, is click through from the link in the right-hand margin at scotthorton.org, and I'll get a little bit of a kickback from Amazon's end of the sale. Won't cost you a thing. Nice little way to help support the show. Again, that's uh, right there in the margin at scotthorton.org. Hey, you want to know what industry is recession-proof? Yes, you're right, of course. Pot. Scott Horton here to tell you about Green Mill Supercritical Extractors. The SFE Pro and Super Producing Parallel Pro can be calibrated to produce all different types and qualities of cannabis crude oils for all different purposes. These extractors are the most important part of your cannabis oil business. For precision, versatility, and efficiency. GreenMillsSuperCritical.com Hey y'all, Scott here. If you want a real education in history and economics you should check out Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Tom and a really great group of professors and experts have put together an entire education of everything they didn't teach you in school but should have. Follow through from the link in the margin at scotthorton.org for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Yeah, it sounds like maybe, you know, in the largest sense, the only real disagreement is whether inflation causes the boom and bust or whether that's a side issue, but, and then as you're saying, the degree on the dial, um, you know, is essentially the argument. Is that right?
2: You talking to me? So,
0: I don't know. Either of you.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll jump in. <laughs> Obviously, Right. So, what I'm saying, obviously, John can correct me if I mischaracterize, but I I think we've moved from inflation is good for you that he was saying and I'm saying, no, it was bad for you. And when we say you, we mean like the average worker. Um, and now it's, I think, more nuanced and we're disagreeing merely about the the levels. And I think we all agree that. Yeah. Yeah. And, Bob, that that I think you
0: agree with John about at least in some circumstances, these are the people that benefit from it. And they're not all arms manufacturers. Some of them are regular schmucks who own a home, for example, and are paying off with depreciated dollars.
2: Right. Yeah. So somebody who already owns a house. Yes. And and even they they go to work and they have a decent salary. And so, yeah, the fact that milk goes up, if their house goes up, too, and they keep paying on their 30-year fixed mortgage, you're right. That sort of person might prefer a slightly higher inflationary regime to uh, uh, less of a one. But, um, I think that is sort of a knife edge case. And again, though, if, if it does cause the boom bust cycle and, and so I can I see what you're saying, Scott, that's kind of an important thing. It's not just a, an aside, then even the person whose house goes up up year after year during the boom, boom period, but then crashes, you know, those, those gains were transitory and their transitory is for real.
0: Yeah. Um, and then of course the property taxes, boy, those assessors run out to eat up any increase that you got anyway, but. Uh, separate issue there. So, um, all right. On, on that question of just how close we can agree or are agreeing here at the end of the day, John, what do you say?
1: Well, first of all, I really enjoyed this. So <laughs> thank you, Scott, for setting this up. I mean, I think it was really interesting and productive. And what I like about America is that weirdos like ourselves, like 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 all of us, like way off from the center of the political spectrum, mm-hmm. do, do in fact agree about a lot of stuff. And the things where we disagree are, I, I do think generally things where you can't, you can't really settle the question. It's just a general worldview about, you know, what you think about people and, and how you think societies were. Uh, so I think this was really interesting and I, I hope people listening got something out of it. Uh, yeah, I agree. Like, like as I say, like that was kind of a trolley headline. And uh, if I were to write it again, I would put in a line about how like we don't want hyperinflation. I, I just, I just don't think in the United States in 2021 we're anywhere close to that. I don't think that it's it's ever going to happen. As I say, I think in a year inflation is going to be much lower. Uh, and this, just the general point for me is that we are much better off under the current paradigm with a low, lower employment economy with higher rates of inflation. I think that's extremely positive for a bunch of reasons. It gives people uh, the bottom distribution of the wage spectrum, um, a lot more bargaining power when unemployment is low for wages and better working conditions. I also think there's a more subtle point, which is when labor is more expensive, that tends to generate labor-saving uh, technologies. And, that is how you get higher levels of productivity in a richer society in the long term. So, if I had to do it all all over again, I would, you know, address some of these subtleties. But I, uh, uh, I think it's sometimes useful to just say the kind of stark way that riles people up and then go and do the backfilling that I'm doing right now.
0: Yeah, I don't know. What do you say, Bob? Should we just all get in a lot of debt?
1: <laughs> so, so, and
2: I, yeah, arguably, that's that's to one of the the problems with it is you. Other things equal, it's actually not good to set the environment or set the conditions such that people want to take on a lot of debt, you know, of course, having it be fixed rate. Um, so, I, again, I can just say that, yes, John is correct that given the way that the, the Fed views things, and this is again a very Keynesian mindset, there is this apparent conflict. And, oh, gee, if, you know, if, if the labor market's overheating, then we got to raise rates. And I understand why some people on the left might look askance at that. And since it looks like it's just protecting the creditors, but in the long run, having that, the ability to debase the currency is not going to be used to help poor people that, that, and again, and we say, okay, hyperinflation is bad. Sure. Well, just think through why is it bad? And when you see that, you realize the same factors are present for a modest inflation. It's just, they're not as bad. So I, you know, I'd make that point too.
0: All right. Well, in fact, all right. Let's stop wrapping up for a second and go back to that. Let's nail that down a little bit. Hyperinflation is destructive, uh John, but regular inflation is not or on the sliding scale it becomes objectionable at what point exactly to you?
1: I I don't know. I mean, this is this is something where you really can't give any kind of hard and fast answers. You know, if if we were to have inflation around this point or, you know, maybe somewhat higher, like seven or eight or nine percent for five years? Like, would that verge on sort of a situation where it is more destructive than constructive? Uh, probably, yeah, because, you know, people do need to blend for the future. And, you know, having high rates of inflation does make that more difficult for a lot of people, a lot of businesses. So, I mean, that's, that's what I would say. Uh, that would be my best guess. But, I don't think we're going to reach that point, and I don't think we really need to worry about it right now. I mean, the the fact is that uh, for the last 40 years, which has been a a real period of low inflation and higher unemployment, uh, we've seen this gigantic accumulation of wealth at the top. And I think that fears about inflation, fear-mongering about inflation are a big part of that. So uh, I, uh, I don't think that we're really anywhere close to the point where we need to worry about it mm. or whether you know, the solutions that are available, which are raising interest rates and slowing the economy and throwing people out of work, uh, are not worse than, mm. than what we're currently experiencing.
0: So now I did read William Grutter, and it's essentially, Bob, it's the story of the Volcker years there where he came in to wage war against inflation. He caused, deliberately jacked up interest rates in order to force mm. a recession, in order to beat inflation. And it did throw a hell of a lot of people out of work. And as Greerder described it, too, that, you know, forget all this monetarist supply side, this, that, Chicago, something or other, where this was all going to lead to massive new reinvestment in supply and new factories and infrastructure, and whatever. That didn't happen. Just a bunch of yuppies bought Porsches and diamond rings for their ladies. And it was, you know, demand side for the rich as people who already had money got to sit on these high interest rates and make a killing in the Ronald Reagan yuppie years at the expense of everybody else. And now, so my understanding, I'm no economist, I'm an anti-war guy, but one of the things that really appealed to to me about Austrian theory when I first read all this stuff was there's no denial about that part of it. It's just explaining that the very richest— they have it both ways. They're benefiting both ways from this. They benefit from all the inflation. I mean, I know that you would argue, and you're about to, right, that it's the abandonment of the gold standard and the increase in all this debt and inflation that's led to, you know, more than any other thing, probably, the disparity between, uh, you know, as they call it, um, in in income between the top earners and everybody else in society, Um But so but it's also true that what Volcker did was make a lot of rich people richer and a lot of marginal people, you know, poorer. In fact, people hear me probably from time to time mention that the Fed kept statistics on suicides and divorces and foster care and bankruptcies all across the country. Very detailed numbers. And they saw it as a measure of their virtue that, yes, we know people are blowing their brains out. But we've got to stay the course to beat inflation, which they, of course, had caused. But it's also the same thing I would point out, John, that when their inflationary bubbles pop, like when Greenspan and Bernanke's bubble popped in a people are blowing their brains out over that, too. Although I guess you would say it's because they started raising rates. They should have kept inflating. And instead, they they stopped inflating. And then I don't know something. But anyway, whose turn is it? <laughs> I think mine <laughs> so
2: well we, we actually haven't given Powell a chance maybe we shouldn't for equal time um, so yeah it, it again you're, you're anticipating what I'm going to say Scott and then it's because you're so well read but yeah it's I understand that Volker is held up as a hero you know among the hard money types or whatever like he had the courage to do what was necessary but that begs the question or maybe it raises the question and I never remember when to use those phrases that why was it that when he took over that inflation, you know, conventionally measured consumer price inflation was at double digit levels and so forth. It's because, like you said, Scott, Nixon finally closed the gold window in 71. And that's so it wasn't a coincidence. Gee, how come the 70s were marked by stagflation? Why was that period so special in U.S. history? And also um, some of your listeners, Scott, might be familiar with. There's a lot of statistics to try to. On the surface, it looks like it's impugning Reaganomics because it's showing, like, oh, look at the t- the gains to the top ten percent or the top one percent, whether in income or wealth, and you know, and it they they make you, they lead you to believe that it was turning around because of the Reagan tax cuts. But if you actually look at the charts, the turnaround happens in the mid seventies, and so you say, okay, what what happened? What was the fundamental shift in the U.S. economy in the mid seventies that could have made it so that all of a sudden, you know, productivity increases didn't translate? into nominal wage gains for the workers what instead seemed to get absorbed by the wheeler dealers and i would argue the major change was nixon finally killed the gold standard and it's partly because of the you know welfare state programs of lbj but also because of the huge warfare state that they had unleashed in the 60s so um you know that that's the way again partly. like so i don't think it's just purely ideology the way john seems to be suggesting i think you can you know look at facts and try to make the case but certainly the facts do withhold, you know, the, the story I'm telling where far from sound money causing the problem in the early eighties, the reason they were in that position to begin with and thought we quote, have to break the back of inflation was because they had opened up the monetary spigots a decade earlier.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, all right. And now, so what do you think, John, about the idea that The wealthy are not necessarily so resentful against inflation because they're the creditors who are getting screwed because they're the ones who benefit from all the inflation in the first place. And so, you know, that's they're essentially again, as in the Volcker years, yeah, they're sitting on bank on high interest rates, but in the inflationary years, they're getting extremely low interest loans. To do to invest in whatever they want and ride massive stock market gains and all the rest of these things?
1: Well, I would say a couple of things about that. First of all, uh, you should talk to all the Wall Street guys who wrote me angry emails about that inflation article. Like, they definitely did not feel that uh, that inflation was a good thing for them. They were extremely concerned about it. Uh, and also, I think it's good. It, it, Good to keep in mind about the 70s. Uh, two different things on this subject. Yeah, you know, first of all, a very big part of the inflation of the 70s was the huge rise in oil prices. And so, like, is it true? Like, like maybe in theory, is there a system where we could have stable money if we just didn't have any wars, and we didn't have any other countries that controlled a key commodity that powers our economy. Like, but I, I, wasn't that
0: wasn't that just the price of oil finally catching up with inflation, whereas the Saudis had been rigging it artificially low previously, just like they do today?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I would have to go back and look at the numbers on that. But I, I mean, again, that's just sort of like, well, we could have stable prices if only none of the things that have happened continually throughout human history happen. You know, it's like, well, may- maybe I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that's a good thing to count on. But in terms of the wealthy and inflation and stocks, I think that is something to keep a very close eye on and is something to understand. Like in the 1970s, the real return on holding money in the stock market was negative. You know, for a decade. Like if you ha- kept your money in the stock market, you were losing money. You were losing value. And so it doesn't like high inflation does not mean that the stock market is going to go up in real terms. And it's just in uh, your uh, in my
0: lifetime only.
1: Well, I mean even there it's not really clear about that. I mean there was not high inflation in like 2019 and 2020 by any means and the stock market also went up a great deal during those years. So I don't think you can really draw any real connection between inflation and the stock market in those terms. And I would tell you, in fact, I'm certain that one of the main concerns of the Wall Street people, and the reason why you see uh, all of these articles about the terrible danger of inflation in the New York Times and the Washington Post, is because they are concerned about a repeat of what happened in the 1970s. And they're, especially because the stock market is way overvalued at this point, that they're concerned that uh, their real return is, is gonna go way down and is plausibly going to be negative, as it was Mm -hmm. in the 1970s. Well,
0: that seems kind of intuitive, Bob, that all these rich people don't want to be on welfare, and they're afraid that if they're on too much welfare, that's going to cause their price to drop? Well,
2: yeah, let me just first make the point, too, that I don't think, you know, the average working class person also, you know, wants a repeat of the 70s either, so I, I don't think it's correct to say, ah, the 70s were the good the, the, you know the time when the when the working man did very well and it was the fat cats that you know had to short end of the stick. I think the 70s were just bad for everybody. Um, so yeah, I mean part of what happened in the 70s, I would argue as a free market economist, not surprisingly, is remember Richard Nixon was just awful on so many levels that he wasn't even the free marketeer that one might have supposed, right He had wage and literally wage and price controls that he put in place, okay besides going off the gold standard. so, um you know there there's a reason that the us economy was so bad in the 70s yeah. and you know i think that partly contributes to the fact of why the stock market didn't keep up in real terms but again too it's uh, when they th- look at it this way cuz and john made a good point there you know to try to counter what you said scott about oh just in our lifetimes then that the the way that austrians tend to use the word inflation is, you know, so the, for the purposes of our discussion here, I've been not harping on it just to not be pedantic. But I, if you notice that the listeners, I kept trying to say price inflation because for the Austrians, what inflation is, just full stop, is creating new money. You're inflating the money supply. And so there, I think you do see that is what happened in 2019, 2020, is the, the, you know, or 2020 for sure, is the Fed created boatloads of new money, even more than they did following the financial crisis. So the rounds of QE, there's a very tight correlation between the movement in the S&P 500, for example, and when Bernanke said whether they were going to have another round of quantitative easing. So, again, just real, real simple stuff. You don't need to be an economist. You don't have to argue statistics. Just the government is you know, creating trillions of new dollars and then getting them into the economy somehow. Who's getting that money first? It's not the wage earner at the factory. Like that's only that by the time the money, new money hits that guy or grail, it's already gone through several hands and the people near the front. Yeah. It's arms manufacturers. It's not just them. It's lots of other people too. But I, I think, you know, when you just think of it like that, it's implausible to say that this engine of inflation is going to be harnessed and help the working person.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. But so why are John's letter writers, mad if they all, uh, in fact, I'll bring up uh, John Stewart had Alan Greenspan on. And he says, oh, so you cut interest rates to spur the stock market, keep the economy humming, right? And Greenspan says, yeah, ain't I smart? And Jon Stewart says, yeah, but if you're just some grandma, then you can't really have a savings account because you keep lowering the interest rate where she can't even you know, keep up with inflation. So now you're kind of forcing her to speculate. You're kind of robbing regular folks to keep the stock market hot for rich guys, aren't you, Alan Greenspan? And Alan Greenspan says... I mean, yeah, I guess (laughs) something like that. Um, it's on the other hand, John is saying he writes this letter and he gets a bunch of uh, writes this uh, article and he gets a bunch of letters from rich investor types saying essentially the opposite, that the last thing in the world that they want is for the government to create a bunch of new money and dump it into the stock market for them, Bob. So what are they thinking? What's behind that? Okay,
2: sure, sure. So again, keep in mind, it's not that I'm arguing the mirror image of John's claim. So he's saying inflation Correct, is good for right. the poor, hurts the rich. I am not saying, no, actually inflation hurts the poor and, and helps the rich. I think I said that right. I am saying in, inflation is bad for everybody in the long run, except perhaps for the very few politically connected people, you know, the people running the central banks and their cronies and so forth. So I am not saying the okay, 1% Okay, but if I'm a benefits, stock market
0: investor, even like a middle yeah. rank stock market investor. I, I'm the only reason I'm mad about inflation in the stock market is if I'm an Austrian and I know there's a bust coming, but otherwise I'm just happy. So in other words, again, how come these people are mad at John for saying, let's keep inflating? Seems like they'd be the ones to say, actually, yeah, you're right. Mr. Left wing guy. Wink, wink.
2: Uh, Well, I mean, I think the people who are happy about it, aren't going to write him in. email and saying, thanks for having <laughs> our back, you know, and, and okay, telling the world about a nefarious place. You know true. what I mean? Like a, a selection, but, and also I'm sure there are a lot of people that when they see how expensive the grocery, I mean, this isn't like some, you know, rhetorical point. I mean, for real going just to the grocery store lately, is crazy. Like stuff is ridiculously expensive compared to a year ago. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of people are not writing emails about. Well, no, actually, the fact that meat's so much more expensive now is really bothering me. So it's, you know, it, it's not shocking to me that there are many hundreds. Or I don't know how many emails, John, got of such people in America who are rich and have the time to complain to him because you know they understand the principles of sound money. But I got you.
0: All right. Well, so now let's wrap up, uh, John. You got your last words, and then or whoever wants to go first, I don't mind. I'll,
2: I'll go, and then John, you want to close. Sounds good. OK. So, so yeah, I, again, um, I understand. Let me, I guess, the one major claim that John kept making or point that I didn't directly address is this idea that, hey, you know, Murphy's utopia might be fine in theory, but in the real world. But look, at, we're arguing about should inflation be higher or lower going forward? So, you know, we're um, we're acting as if, you know, we either have some influence or we're just talking about what would be preferable. So, um you know the, the the government did have the gold standard at one point and then it went off of it and i think it's worth pointing out that most of the negative consequences that john and and i agree with as pointing to was not because the gold standard was adhered to it was the precisely when they went off and allowed inflation monetary inflation which caused price inflation and then tried to tighten again that was the problem so again looking at like what volcker did if we can all agree that was not good for the working person at that point I would just push it back a step and say he was in that position because of the earlier torrent of monetary inflation. And we've all agreed, too, that you can't just keep doing it. In other words, Volcker couldn't have just said, ah, let it rip. And then we don't have to have the painful recession. At some point, the currency collapses, and we all agree that's bad for everybody. So I'm saying rather than let the the dogs out and then try to just keep them tame, actually, in the long run, the safest thing is to maintain the purchasing power of the dollar and ultimately take it out of the government's hands altogether so it's not that i want you know more rational monetary policy conducted by a responsible fed i would want to get rid of the central bank altogether
0: now that is a whole new debate but uh john (laughs) i'll let you close from here thank you bob
1: yeah well so anyway i just want to say again like how much i enjoyed talking with you guys about this yeah this has been great right
0: yeah, 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 me, me
1: too. I, sh- I should have been... I first, hope I ask good enough questions. Myself. I really
0: am very yeah. much an amateur at this, but I, I hope I, I help frame all the arguments, many of them right.
1: Yeah, and it, it, it is very rare that oddballs and cranks such as ourselves like you know, really get the opportunity to talk at length about these kinds of
0: things. And I also and so, hope somebody with a stopwatch tell me if I was fair on the time. I think I was.
1: Yeah, just about. And uh, all I would say... Uh, at the end here, is that I would really encourage people to just think about these issues, like whatever conclusions you come to in the end, one of the things about American society is is that this is one of the core aspects of U.S. politics, like one of the most important things. And if you're bored by it and you don't pay attention to it, believe me, the people in charge are very happy about that. They would love for you to not think about this kind of stuff. So, there are a million books that you could read. I would say, I think if you're willing to wait and read 800 pages about you know, monetary policy and the Federal Reserve, for me, a great place to start is Secrets of the Temple by William Grider. And uh, you know, at the end, he talks about the, the, it's a kind of human reluctance to look at these issues so directly, because it makes you realize that uh, you know, monetary policy is this extremely powerful lever, and it allows us to wield power in a way that is uh, kind of disturbing, uh, if you think about all the implications of it, and people resist this and want to hand it off to experts. So don't hand this stuff off to experts. Uh, read William Brighter. Read uh, you know stuff of Austrian stuff, and just think about it th- for yourself. And uh, read the Wall Street Journal. They also they tell the truth there to a surprising degree.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, good point. Cause they know who's reading that they actually need to know what the hell's going on in their audience. So right. that's always sound advice. Not that it's true, just that it's what they want those people to think, <laughs> which is important. Um, Now, so I want to challenge you both, too. I would—and you don't have to accept this at all, either of you, but I would like to see— John, I would like to see you read Bob's Politically Incorrect Guides, and I guess he's got his new uh, monetary book out. But those Politically Incorrect Guides, I like them because I was— And and listen, me and Bob are friends and I really respect him and and all of his thinking and everything. But I was so pleasantly surprised throughout both of those books about how thorough a job he did of essentially, as I like to put it, attacking the left from the left and presuming your objection and attempting to answer that. And you could, you know, knock them out real quick. Both of them. It's um, the Great Depression and the New Deal. And then the other one is just the politically incorrect guide to capitalism. And I think you would get so much out of that. And then, Bob, I would like to see you read Secrets of the Temple and and maybe write up a review with that and see, because I agree with John, not that I agree with William Greider, but I agree with John that it, there's a lot of value in taking a look at that version of the history. This is a Washington Post, guys, you know, a liberal Democrat's version of the Volker years, but it's very well-informed and very detailed and— and uh and has so much in that. And then, you know, maybe we could even revisit this at uh, a yeah, why why medium-term future it would be date here.
1: Yeah, it, it would be great to reconvene uh, after after reading stuff from the other side. That'd be very interesting. Yeah, what do you say, Bob? Yeah, that sounds great.
0: All right, cool. Well, everybody shake hands and thank you very much to both of you. I think it's been really great.
1: Thanks for having us, Scott. This was fun. Yeah, Scott, Thanks. thanks for providing the opportunity. I really appreciate it.
0: The Scott Horton Show Antiwar anti Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.